Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Seven Seas Are One by Alison V. Harding Dr. John Ogilby opened his front door in answer to the insistent ringing. Outside stood an aged, agitated little woman. "'Why, Mrs. Ives,' said the doctor in surprise, "'it's rather late to see you abroad.' "'It's the captain, doctor,' fluttered the woman, wringing her hands. "'Please come with me. He's not right again.' "'What do you mean?' "'Not right.' "'He's talking queer, doctor, and he's sitting up in his room with a loaded pistol on his lap, rolling his eyes and carrying on to scare the saints. I get so worried.' The little old woman looked as though she was about to burst into tears. "'Sometimes I tell myself I should stop housekeeping. But Captain Tyler needs me. At any rate, he needs somebody.' Her hands waved helplessly in accompaniment to the oft-repeated tale. Dr. Ogilby put on his hat and coat and went out the door with her. "'Of course you walked, Mrs. Ives. Nary a person would stop to give me a lift, doctor. Well, we'll take my car to go back out. It's getting dark, and a two-mile walk would keep us away from him just that much longer. How is his rheumatism, Mrs. Ives?' Her brow puckered as she followed him into his little coupé. "'Praise us! That is the least of my worries with all this queer talk he's doing.' As they started off down a back road of Little Clarksville, the small New England town was even then, at nine o'clock, readying itself for the night. The yellow glow from the headlights probed forward along the desolate lane that led to Captain Tyler's. Mrs. Ives was silent now, fatigued by her walk into town. Dr. Ogilby sorted over in his mind what he knew about the old seafarer. What he knew indeed! It was next to nothing. Precious little— Tyler was an old sailor. He had been master of his own ship, and lived two miles outside town in a little house, the rent for which was covered by his monthly retirement stipend. Mrs. Ives, a reliable character of the town, who, with her kin, had made serving others their profession, kept the old sailor's home for him, cleaning and getting an occasional meal. Dr. Ogilby was necessary because of the attacks of rheumatism that the captain was liable to develop at any time. Dr. Ogilby remembered the first time he had seen Tyler. He was impressed with the bigness of the man, the frank brutality of his weather-beaten face. "'I get these pains, Doc,' roared the old ship's master. "'My legs and my back, they, they get hurting something awful. You'll fix me up, eh?' And Dr. Ogilby said he'd be glad to do his best. He noted at the first examination that, physically, the captain was as strong as an ox— Dr. Ogilby pulled the nose of his little car into the driveway and braked to a stop. With Mrs. Ives bustling along ahead, the physician stepped into the house. "'He's upstairs,' said the housekeeper. Dr. Ogilby nodded silently and started up the flight leading to the top floor. There was a roar from above. "'Avast there, you seacock! I hear you coming!' Mrs. Ives trotted up the steps back of the doctor. "'You see, that's what he was doing all afternoon.' He seems to think somebody's after him. Ogilby reached the top of the stairs. The old seamaster's room was directly before him, the door to it open. Seated in an ancient rocker just inside was Captain Tyler, his clothes disarranged, a mad light in his eyes, and a derringer lying on his knee. As the physician stepped toward him, the seafarer made a move to reach for his gun. 
His hand closed excitedly over the stock of his weapon, and he exploded some curses. "'It's only me, Captain Tyler,' hurried the doctor. "'You're not feeling well, I see. I want to help you. Now, tell me what's the matter.' The old man broke at that, and his hands fell slackly at his sides. Dr. Ogilby tactfully removed the small derringer and placed it on the bureau. He noted that Tyler's face was white and bore signs of strain. "'Come now, get yourself over here and I'll examine you.' Tyler hobbled over to the bed and stretched out, muttering all the while to himself. "'It's good you came, doctor,' he gasped. "'It's good you came. There's been a bad wind blowing around here lately. Means trouble. I can feel it, you know. I think he's coming. That's what I've been saying to myself all day. I've been saying to myself, "'Captain, watch out. He'll be back soon now.' "'Who's he?' asked the doctor curiously. But Tyler's answer was an unintelligible muttering punctuated by some more oaths. After satisfying himself that there was nothing of a physical nature wrong with Tyler, Dr. Ogilby urged a strong sedative on the old man, and went softly out of the room. Mrs. Ives was waiting impatiently downstairs. "'What do you make out of all this, doctor?' she said eagerly. "'Well, he seems very upset about something.' He doesn't complain about his rheumatism, though, and I find nothing else wrong with him. I think he'll sleep it off. Nothing unusual's happened lately, has it? No, said the housekeeper thoughtfully. Except— Except what? said the doctor. Oh, I don't think there's any connection, but he has two closets up in his room. One he keeps locked all the time. I was cleaning in his room yesterday, and I tried the locked door absent-mindedly. He was sitting in the room, and he started to curse. Well, you know how he goes on. After I went downstairs, he locked the door to his room, and I, I couldn't help hearing that he went to the closet and opened it. He's done this before, and it always seems to upset him. I hear him grumbling and cursing and talking as if actually to somebody. He probably keeps a bit of rum in there, said Ogilby Riley. Although I must admit there's no trace tonight that he's been drinking— "'You don't usually stay here all night, do you, Mrs. Ives?' The elderly woman shook her head. "'I think if you could, though, it would be better. He should sleep right through until tomorrow, and I have every anticipation that he'll be all right when he wakes up. But a man of his age shouldn't be completely alone when he's so upset, no matter what the cause. I wouldn't mind telling him that I suggested you stay, and I'm sure he'd pay you for your time.' "'Oh, it isn't that at all, doctor,' said Mrs. Ives, hastily. I don't mind when a poor soul is sick, but it's kind of lonely out here, and his strange talk today made me feel sort of creepy. There's so much darkness around this little cottage. It's lonely. There's woods all around us except the side where the sea comes in. Oh, I've been here a few nights, you know. One time, you remember, when he was very bad with rheumatism. The doctor nodded. He's not a very sociable old codger, I guess. "'All there is is the sound of the sea and the wind,' Mrs. Ives shuddered. "'Still, if you think I ought—' "'I do,' said Dr. Ogilby. "'And if you can, I'd feel better about it.' He took two white pellets out of his bag. "'If he wakes up in the night and you hear him, give him these.' The doctor closed his black bag with a snap, and headed toward the car. "'I'll drop by some time tomorrow, Mrs. Ives.' Then he was gone— and the sound of his car finally receded into the distance, leaving only sighing wind, and the sound of the nearby sea lapping at the sun-baked summer earth.
Mrs. Ives made very sure of the windows and doors of the cottage before she lay down on the couch. Almost laughing at herself, she took the heavy poker from the fireplace and placed it on a chair at her side. Then, with the light off, she tried to relax, staring up at the ceiling and wondering about the old man upstairs, who had kept insisting that he was coming. The housekeeper thought with a chill that he was probably not very nice— else why would an unimaginative and resourceful man like shipmaster Tyler wait for him with a loaded pistol and a white, haunted face? The next day, when Dr. Ogilby called, Captain Tyler was his old, gruff, blustering self, with seemingly no remembrance of the preceding day. He was hardly civil to Ogilby, and before the physician could say much, the captain had headed off down toward the shore. Mrs. Ives reported nothing unusual— and Ogilby went away thinking that all was well. But it was only a week later, when Ogilby received another hurry-call to come out to the Tyler cottage on the sea-coast. This time a messenger brought word, Mrs. Ives not wanting to leave the old man. When the physician arrived, he found the housekeeper highly perturbed downstairs. "'He's fired that gun off,' she expostulated. "'Gracious! But I think he's right out of his head!' "'Long as you're all right, Mrs. Ives,' said the doctor, hurrying up the stairs. This time the door to Tyler's room was shut, and locked, the doctor soon found out. He rapped sharply on the panel, and a hoarse guttural sound came from within. "'Captain Tyler! It's Dr. Ogilby!' There was a curse, and the sound of some furniture knocked over. "'Go away!' roared the old sailor. "'Now, now, Captain,' soothed Ogilby from outside. "'Please let me in.' I'm sorry you're ill. I want to help you. Finally, there was the sound of the lock, and Captain Tyler flung the door open. As the panel slid aside, Ogilby found himself facing a pistol. Put that thing down, man. Tyler still retained enough of his senses to recognize the doctor, and allowed the pistol to be taken from his hand. Even so, Captain Tyler stepped to the door, and called downstairs to Mrs. Ives. Ahoy below there! Keep a sharp eye out for strangers. Keep things battened down. With that he closed the door, locked it, and turned to Ogilby almost pathetically. Didn't see nobody around when you came, did you, Doc? The physician shook his head. But why, Captain? Tell me, what's it all about? Do you have reason to believe somebody wants to make trouble for you? The old sailor smiled at that. Trouble, you say, Doc? Well, now, I wouldn't say quite trouble— he means to kill me. What? said Dr. Ogilby, shocked. Who is this person? And why do you think he's after you? With that, the bulky figure turned away. Reckon it's nobody's business but mine. But, Captain, is it one of the people in Clarksville? But Tyler shrugged, and would say no more. Think he's a mite touched, Doctor? said Mrs. Ives, later downstairs. Ogilby frowned. It's hard to pass judgment on a thing like that, he acts perfectly normal most of the time. Oh, he treats me fine, answered Mrs. Ives hastily. Pays me well, he does. Treats me kind. Short and irritable sometimes, you understand. But he's a reasonable gentleman, I always say. Of course he swears. But men folks do that, especially sailors. He's got no people, has he? mused the physician. Not so far as I've been able to find out, replied the housekeeper definitely. Well— the medical man concluded. At least his rheumatism isn't bothering him much these days. 
By the way, you haven't been able to find out who this person is he thinks wants to harm him? No, said Mrs. Ives. Then, as an afterthought, maybe he's possessed. Ogilby smiled. Well, Mrs. Ives, if the captain needs me, just get in touch any time. The captain needed Dr. Ogilby just three days later. He's dead, screamed Mrs. Ives over a neighbor's telephone to the physician. He drowned himself out there on the shore. Lord a mercy, we never would have found him if it hadn't been for the neighbor's boy. At least, I think he's dead. Oh, doctor, hurry, hurry. They say he's got some warmth in him yet. Ogilby raced out in his car, and found Captain Tyler in unconscious cold white form. His heart was still beating, though, and the old sailor's iron constitution was staving off the effects of his near drowning. After getting him in bed and giving the proper medications, Ogilby went downstairs, where a tall, gangling lad of about seventeen was waiting with Mrs. Ives. "'How is he, doctor?' said the housekeeper. "'Oh, he'll be all right,' said Ogilby. "'He's got tremendous strength, you know. How did this business happen?' Mrs. Ives spread her arms wide. "'It was Harley here who found him.' The medical man turned to the young lad. "'What happened?' The boy was still upset by his experience, and his words came haltingly. "'You see, I was walking down by the coast. I got some lines set offshore, and I was checking them, when I came up to the little beach on the captain's property, and I saw him walking along, waving his hands, and talking as though somebody else were there with him. Naturally, I watched. He started walking away from the water toward his cottage— then all of a sudden his hands came out like somebody was about to wrestle or, or fight. Honest, it looked as though he was about to fight with somebody. And then he goes staggering down the beach like he was drunk, or somebody's pushed him, and in a twink he's in the water up to his shoulders, clothes and all. Then I see him go under, only he doesn't come up again. Naturally, I don't like to interfere in the beginning, but when I see this I think he's in some trouble, so I run as fast as I can out there and go in after him, and pull him up on the beach. He weren't in very long, but long enough to get a lot of water into him, and it's coming out of his mouth and nose. He was unconscious, so I yelled, and finally Mrs. Ives heard me and came down. She took one look and said, He's dead. And I got thinking first maybe he was. He looked so cold and so white. But I did like we were taught in the scouts. The boy made pushing movements with his two hands. Of course, at first, even if you think the guy's dead, you, you should work on him. Dr. Ogilby nodded in approval, and slapped the boy on the shoulder. Between us, we dragged him up to the house, and then Mrs. Ives ran over to my place and called you. Then he got to breathing a bit on his own. I'm glad he's all right. You did fine, Harley, commended the doctor. The boy enjoyed the praise, but then looked worried. There was something awful funny about the way he carried on, though. Mrs. Ives frowned. "'When you're the captain's age, maybe you'll take a couple of drinks sometimes. Better be running along home, Harley. I'm going to tell your mother what a good smart lad you are.' The boy winked, and grinningly departed. "'I don't want it getting around that the captain's a crazy man,' said the housekeeper indignantly. "'If only for my sake. I don't want anybody to think I work for somebody possessed by—demons. I'm going to go up and have another talk with him,' said the doctor. I think we've got to find out what's preying on his mind. Mrs. Ives shrugged. Sometimes it's a mistake to look into these things too closely, Doctor. 
If there's strange forces at work, if the captain hears and sees things that we don't, that's the Almighty's work, and we don't want to butt our way into it. I'll be very careful, Mrs. Ives, you may be sure, reassured the medical man, heading upstairs. Captain Tyler's eyes followed Dr. Ogilby across the room from door to bedside. Drawing up a chair close by, the physician seated himself, reached over, and patted one of the sailor's huge hairy paws. Some colour had come back into his patient's face, but the man's eyes were feverish and troubled. "'Just what happened to you, Captain?' said Ogilby. The ex-seafarer bared his teeth in a ghoulish grin. "'Aye, and don't you know it's him, Doc? I knew he'd come back, and he's here. He almost got me today, too, didn't he? Now, man, you've got to stop this talk about him. Who is he? If somebody's bothering you, let us know.' There are laws against that sort of thing. No laws, doctor. The old man wagged his head. Ogilby shook his head impatiently. If you don't care to tell me, he started. The captain rolled eyes dilated with fear toward him. Sure, I'll tell you, doc. A tale that'll make your hair stand on end. And it's true, bless me, every word of it. Ogilby laid a soothing hand against his patient's shoulder. Now take it easy, Tyler, he said. You went through an ordeal this afternoon. Maybe this isn't the time. Maybe it is, roared the old man, and he cursed vehemently for a few minutes. Then you can see the sort of weather I'm headed into. Ogilby saw that it would upset his patient more to oppose him than to let him get the yarn off his chest. Anyway, he felt a natural curiosity. All right, let's have it. The ex-skipper dug his elbows into the bed and hitched himself a notch higher. It was on my last trip, Doc. We were coming back from South America with a mixed cargo. My ship was poorly manned that trip, and I had a bad one for my first mate. He didn't like me, and I didn't like him from the first day we sighted each other in Savannah Harbour. That's when he joined up with me. Well, you don't always like the men that serve under you, and they don't always like you. But this time it was more than that. I think the fates meant us to hate each other sort of a foreshadow of what was going to happen. At Montevideo we picked up a few passengers. Six of them were women. All went well, until we're about three-quarters of the way up the South American coast, when one of the worst storms I've ever seen in that part of the world blew up. Still, I would have bet on the old Betsy May, that was her name, riding out almost anything, when we had to go and drop a screw. Then the first mate went crazy— and without orders from me, turned the Betsy May toward where the coastline was, fifty or sixty miles away. Before I could countermand his orders, we had taken the full weight of the sea across our beam, and the Betsy May sprang a dozen leaks all at once. Even as I cursed the mate and set the helmsman right, I knew from the way the old girl rode now that she was doomed. Captain Tyler wrung his giant hands together, as though he were still standing on the bridge that fateful night. I had sparks send out distress signals, but we found there was no ship within six hours of us. I knew that in that heavy sea we stood only a slim chance in open boats and rafts, but the mate on his own hook began to ready the lifeboats. I saw red then, and I almost shot him for insubordination. I could have, too. I warned him to wait until he got his orders from me. By this time, the Betsy May had a list of at least forty-five degrees— and the pumps were fighting a losing battle against the water pouring into her hold. Finally, 
I knew if we waited much longer, we'd be carried down with the vessel, so I had the lifeboats that hadn't been wrecked by the storm lowered, and rafts thrown into the sea. Very few of us made it, but I jumped in and found my way to a small raft capable of holding five or six people. Somehow, several of the women were clustered aboard this raft. I was able to pick another of the women out of the water, although we hardly had space for her. Every now and then we would be completely covered up as waves and spray poured over us. So overcrowded we seemed on the verge of turning over into that boiling sea at any moment. Suddenly I felt our raft dip dangerously, and several of the women screamed. I looked down, and saw a pair of hands clutching the side of the boat. One of the women started to moan. The others were crying. It seemed any moment our raft would turn over, and all of us plunged into the sea. The swimmer, whoever he was, was trying to hoist himself onto the raft, and we could all see he would upset it. I knew the other occupants could never have lasted in that sea again more than a few minutes. Then I saw who he was. It was the mate there in the water, snarling and gripping our raft and raising himself up on it. I yelled at him over the sound of the storm, and he screamed back at me. And then instinctively I hit him. I smashed at his hands on the side of the raft. It was either him or all of us. I knew it, and the other people on the raft knew it. Then he got a fist grip on the front of my jacket. I cursed the strength of that master's coat I'd always been so proud of. Cursed as he held on, his fingers hooked around a button, and some of the cloth. One of the women, with frenzied strength, helped me wrench his one hand loose from the side. But it was I who struck him on the head with all my strength. His weight slumped back in the water, almost pulling me overboard. Then there was a wrench and a ripping of cloth, and I was free. The mate's other hand had torn loose from my jacket, and he went under. He sank right straight down, slowly. Straight as a statue he went, as though there were a weight tied to his feet. But all the time his eyes were open, and he stared at me. From under the water he did, I tell you, and even after the rest of his body had gone out of sight, I could see his eyes burning up at me out of the water, his two eyes looking up at me, and I knew what he was saying. I knew he was swearing revenge. I don't know how long I kept seeing his eyes way down there burning up through the water, but I swear I did for hours. Finally, the sea calmed and light showed in the east. Not long afterward, we were picked up. Everybody on the raft was very grateful to me, and not one ever said anything about the mate. They all knew it was him, or all of us. But I kinda knew he meant to follow me, wherever I went. Captain Tyler shrugged in his bed. That was my last trip. It's hard for a sailor to lose his ship on the last trip like that, but my record had always been very good, and I was over the age limit. So I came here. A landlubber finally, but— as close to the sea as I could get. I'd die without the sea dock. Tyler looked at Ogilby intently. There. That's the tale. Ogilby hummed, and then reasoned, But surely you don't really believe that a dead man can come thousands of miles up here to get revenge? I can see that you have that adventure clearly in your mind, and that naturally you feel remorseful about it. Still, as you've described it to me, you could have done nothing else that night. Come now, man, you can't go on brooding about it. The experience, horrible as it was, can't affect you now. 
At that, Captain Tyler flew into a rage. "'Why, you idiot, I saw him, I tell you. I saw him sink right before me. His eyes were looking at me as he went down. He was dead, but he was still looking at me, his eyes shining up out of the water. He was talking to me, he was, and I understood what he said.' Dr. Ogilby shook out some white tablets onto the bed-table. "'Now, Captain,' he soothed, "'you're going to be all right. If you feel restless, just take one of these. I'm going to ask Mrs. Ives to stay in the house with you a few nights, and if you need me, you can get her to go over to the neighbours and phone. I'm sure you're going to be all right again. You realise how much better your rheumatism's been lately?' the physician added brightly. "'Damn the rheumatism, man!' I've got me something real to worry about this time. Ogilby started toward the door. You'll see, roared the captain, but I'm aiming to fight. What can you fight, captain? said Ogilby, pausing, his hand on the knob. Captain Tyler shook his shaggy head, and worry pushed his face into a grimace. I don't know, he said. I guess I brought it on myself, and there's not much I can do. I know he's here. When I first bunked into this place, I thought it could be he wouldn't find me. But then one day I got the feeling—Doc, I got the feeling that he was here. I get it from the sea, you understand. It doesn't make any difference that this place is thousands of miles away from where the Betsy May went down. What's that to a dead man? And Captain Tyler threw back his head and laughed. You take a couple of those pills, called Dr. Ogilby as he pulled open the door. All right, me arty said Tyler. Downstairs, the physician spoke to Mrs. Ives. He's very upset. This thing has been a great shock to him. Did you find out anything more about this person he thinks is after him? said the curious old woman. He's not very clear about all that, evaded the doctor. But he sure believes it, awful heart, countered Mrs. Ives. Let's see. It was the hardware man's son who was kind of crazy here a few years ago— he used to go around with a shotgun. Never did anything bad, but sure scared a lot of folks out of their wits. Them folks are hard to comprehend. Ogilby dismissed this with a wave of his hand. It's not like that, Mrs. Ives. Captain Tyler has been through a lot of experiences at sea that make him, well, perhaps a little different from us. And then his accident today would be upsetting to anybody. You do the best you can, and I'll come back in a day or so. Typically, Captain Tyler was his old self again within twenty-four hours, holding off any and all questions regarding the previous episode. Mrs. Ives reported to Dr. Ogilby, however, that the sailor spent much more time down at the seashore looking out at the ocean. "'Kind of as though he's waiting for something,' she said. "'Or somebody.' "'He's a sailor,' replied the medical man. "'It follows that he's fond of water.' Too bad they take a man like that off a boat and tie him up to the shore. Still, there's a nice pension, he added as an afterthought. The next few weeks of warm summer weather passed quickly, when one night at his office door, Ogilvy was called upon by Captain Tyler himself. The old man was greatly perturbed. He had thinned a bit, and his face was drawn and shadowed. Dr. Ogilvy, he started hesitantly after the greetings. I've got to get out of Clarksville right away. You're the only person I know here, excepting Mrs. Ives. I wondered if you could help me to get rid of my little berth. There was such pleading in the old man's eyes that the doctor at once offered to do all he could to help him dispose of the house. 
What's brought you to this decision, though, Captain? I thought you liked our country. Well, I do, and I don't, said Tyler. Anyway, I thought I'd go someplace else as quick as possible. Dr. Ogilby decided to speak what was in his mind. Is it because of that fellow you think is after you? Fear crowded across the old sailor's face. Guess it is, he answered in a low voice, studying his hands. Don't mind speaking up to you that I'm scared, Doc. I lie there at night, listening to the sea, and I hear him outside, splashing around, waiting for me. And then I get so I think I see those eyes looking right through the wall at me. He thinks he's got me now. Maybe I did wrong that time years ago, but I can't stand having him haunting me this way. Ogilby put a sympathetic arm around his patient. "'I'll do all I can to help you,' said the doctor. "'When do you think we could get this settled?' Tyler pushed. "'Well, of course, it does take some time. If I could go away quick. A few days at the least it'll take. Do the best you can, doctor,' said the old seafarer. The next day Ogilby made several inquiries around town. It pleased him to find that it probably would be possible to take over Captain Tyler's little cottage within a reasonably short time. Full of this news, and at the end of his calls early, he decided to head his coupé out toward the skipper's home. Reaching there, he alighted and walked into the house. Mrs. Ives was baking biscuits in the kitchen, and didn't know where the captain was. "'He's probably out taking one of his walks,' she said. "'Most likely you'll find him down near the water.' Dr. Ogilby thanked her, and headed outside. He picked his way carefully along a well-defined trail that ran through some pine trees toward the beach. Topping a small rise, he came to a place where the trees were not so numerous. He was able to look down on the water and the beach. Sure enough, there was Captain Tyler. But wait a minute, there was something wrong. Ogilby's thoughts ran back to the neighbour boy Harley's story of a few weeks ago. The physician's heart pounded, and he broke into a run, coming off the little promontory, and starting through the rest of the wooded part, for the beach. For Tyler had been in sight all right, but where he had no right to be, in water up to his waist, and heading further out, struggling and splashing, as though against some unseen underwater force that was inexorably pulling him out. Just before Ogilby cleared the last of the trees to run onto the beach, a scream came back to him and then it was strangely muffled, as though from beneath the water. There was also the sound of mad thrashing and splashing, and then Ogilby was on the beach, rushing toward where he had last seen Captain Tyler, for the captain was no more. He had vanished completely. Ogilby stormed up and down the beach for several minutes, then he rushed back, calling at the top of his lungs, Mrs. Ives! Mrs. Ives! After several tries, he got a response. Come down here quickly, and bring anybody else you can get. Ogilby strode back to the water's edge, and peered out over the now rippleless surface. The tide was coming in, but there was no indication of where Tyler had gone. Should he wait out a ways? This question was settled for Dr. Ogilby, when suddenly, about two hundred yards off the beach, something black and log-like and motionless quietly broke the surface of the water. Ogilby fought the terror that choked his throat. It was a human body floating out there, face down. By now, Mrs. Ives came gasping up, and not far behind, the lanky form of Harley, with his father in tow, both panting. Ogilby motioned out to the water mutely. 
Mrs. Ives' near-sighted eyes nearly popped trying to make out what it was. Harley said, "'Geez!' and Harley Sr. gasped. "'Well, what's this all about?' said the housekeeper, irritably. But the tide was slowly nudging the black rigid form closer. Mrs. Ives gaped then. A few more minutes, and the body bobbed and drifted its slow way up near the beach line. The men waded in and tugged at the weight. The body was got up on the dry sand. Dr. Ogilby felt for pulse, but this time there was not the faintest flicker of life. The face was frozen in a terrible mask of horror. The body was stiff and wooden-like. The arms held rigid, huge fists clenched tightly. "'Give me a hand here,' muttered Ogilby, and the man and boy helped him tote the big body up to the house in dreary procession. Ogilby hustled the others from the skipper's room, wanting to make a thorough examination in private. Straightened out on his own bed, Captain Tyler's figure was forlorn. There was no question about it. The man had died of drowning. Dr. Ogilby was interested in the rigidity of the body. He tried to bend Tyler's arms from the elbow. The man's features had been sealed as though by concrete and plaster, by a fear so great that it had changed his very appearance. It was then, and only then, that the physician noticed that there was something in the left clenched fist. For some minutes he worked over the dead sailor, working and forcing the strong fingers apart. Finally, he succeeded in opening them. In the palm of Captain Tyler's hand was a lump of wetness, almost like seaweed. Without looking closely, Ogilby absently dropped it into his own pocket. As he brushed against the body, a jingling noise attracted his attention. Stopping to examine it, methodically he went through the old sailor's pocket, finally finding a huge ring with many jingling keys upon it. A sudden thought occurred to the physician. He crossed to the forbidden closet that was never opened, and tried one after another of the keys. At last, one fitted. He slipped back the bolt, and pulled at the knob. The inside and contents of the closet were unspectacular. An old chest in the corner which, when the lid was lifted, revealed nothing but some worthless trinkets, probably of only sentimental value. A cutlass on the floor, some coloured blankets, picked up in some exotic port, and some old shipmaster's equipment. Ogilby was about to leave, when his eye was caught by something hanging in the corner. He moved closer. There was a skipper's uniform, perhaps of another decade, old but well-kept and brushed, the buttons shiny. Then he leaned forward. There was a piece of cloth torn out of the front, and the third button with it, the master's jacket Tyler had worn on the Betsy May. His hands shaking, Ogilby leaned forward and looked at the rent closely for several moments. Ogilby quit the closet then, locking the door carefully behind him. He replaced the keys, and covered Captain Tyler. Then he crossed to the window of the little bedroom. He looked out, and below he could see the water. The ways of the sea were strange, he thought, taking no account of time and distance, and even death. He felt into his pocket then, and brought forth what he knew he would find— the wet clump of something that was old cloth surge, with a rusted button in the centre, strangely preserved it was, and perfectly matching that rip in the old master's uniform hanging in the closet.' 